The Sons of Liberty is a politically neutral organization. We believe that the Judeo-Christian ethic has provided the principles upon which this nation was founded. It is our belief that these principles provide not only the foundation and framework for American government and society, but are also essential to the maintenance of a fair and just society. All program content is based on a Christian biblical worldview. One of you said to me recently that we shouldn't rock the boat. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I want to tell you that I am a boat rocker. I will not wear the mask. 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 I will not wear a mask. I will not get the vaccine. I will not get the vaccine. And I will not get the vaccine. I will resist evil. I will resist evil. I will resist evil. I will submit to God. I will submit to God. I will submit to God. In the Lord, I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust, and I will not be afraid. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day. For the Lord is the great God, and the great King above all. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Render punishment to the proud. Lord, how long will the wicked, how long will the wicked chime? Righteousness and justice are the foundation of this I hate the work of those who fall away. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I have said, mercy shall be built up forever. Your faithfulness you shall stand. On an instrument of ten strings, on the lute and on the harp, with harmonious sound. For you, O Lord, have made me glad through your works. I will you, triumph Lord, in the works of your are on high forevermore. For behold, your enemies shall perish. All the workers of iniquity shall be scattered. I will defy tyrants. 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 And with that, good morning, America. Welcome Christians, conservatives, constitutionalists, liberals, libertarians, communists, Islamists, LGBTQ, RSTV, WXYZ people. All the butt rockers are in the house and anybody else I may have missed to the Sons of Liberty radio show here on Red State Talk Radio where we use the Bible and the Constitution not to see who's on the right or the left, but who's on the straight and narrow. I'm your host, Tim Brown, coming to you live from the U.S.-occupied state of South Carolina. Actually, I'm coming live, but we're pre-recording from the U.S.-occupied state of South Carolina. The editor at SonsLibertyMedia.com, and for our Muslim friends, I'm the infidel that Allah warns you about. I hold to the book, the Bible, as the authoritative word of God. Glad that you guys have joined us here this morning. And if you'd like to check us out online, please do so, SonsOfLibertyRadio.com and SonsOfLibertyMedia.com. In fact, if you're listening by way of Red State Talk Radio and you want to watch the video portion of the radio show, that's right, you can see the face that's made for radio, just head over to SonsOfLibertyMedia.com, scroll down on the right side of the page, and we will be live in the area that I'm actually showing people now. And uh, if you want to check that out, do that, and you can blow it up. You can also click on the platform icon, join us in the chat. We always have a lot of people in there in the mornings, and so we appreciate their support. Come over there and join us. You'll find some like-minded people uh, in the bunch over there. Right now you can see that Bradley's going live, but uh, you'll be able to see his show from the previous day. 
and uh, which is going now. You can. This always messes with me when I do a pre-record because I'm talking about something going on now. That's anyway. You can you can play you can play that, and then at 3 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Central, he goes live again on SonsOfLibertyMedia.com. You can catch him there. Right above that is where you can subscribe to our email newsletter. We don't rent your email, sell it, or spam it. Uh, you get one email from us a day, and that includes the morning show archive where we have uh, all the links of things that we're going to show you, the videos, all of this stuff will be linked up in that one article in a nice, neat little package along with the video show and also the podcast. So if you miss something, you want to share something, it'll be found in there at sonsoflibertymedia.com. Finally, we don't ask you for money. We let you know we have needs. Uh, it costs money to do all the things we do from the Internet to the radio to being out in the 50 states, reminding people of our Christian constitutional heritage. And so if you would like to help us in that, if you agree with our message, there's a donate button at the top of sonsoflibertymedia.com. You can make a one-time donation or you can partner with us as a son or daughter of liberty. That's our monthly partners. That's also at the top of sonsoflibertymedia.com. And finally, our store is available. Lots of products in there, you guys, for... Um, you know, starting conversations and things. This week, we're highlighting Bradley's The Prayer That Rocked the Capitol DVD when he was asked in 2011 to offer the prayer uh, at the Minnesota State House. And as a result of that, uh, the nation's, you know, mockingbird media just lost their minds. It was a simple prayer. wasn't shouldn't have been offensive at all. And yet, uh, you know, from MSLSD to the regular outlets that you know about, these guys just took it and they just blew open the ministry that we have here at the Sons of Liberty and gave us a platform, as as we often say here, let their cruelties swell our ranks, and indeed they did. So this video is available, the DVD is available for $20 normally, but through this Saturday night at midnight, you enter the promo code 25PRAYER, that's 25 the number, and prayer one word, uh, you'll get 25% off the DVD. So if you've been wanting to pick that up, now's your chance to do it. you got till Saturday midnight to use that promo code and to uh, save some money there. And you know me, I'm Mr. Frugal. I like saving money, okay? So I'm sure many of you do too. All right, so here's the thing. We've been highlighting Extortion 17 this week, mainly because the day this airs, which will be Friday, August 6th, it'll be 10 years to the day that we've had the largest loss of life in the Afghan war. And I think it was um, Don uh, Brown who had said it was even a, a bigger deal than just in the Afghan war. And so we still don't have any justice for these men's death. Uh, we still are struggling with, you know, problems within the military to right some wrongs that are there. There's still an ongoing cover up. The media has yet to really bring out the story. And so I thought, you know what? This week, we're going to make a difference. The airing of Fallen Angel came out on the 3rd. Uh, I told you where you can pick that up. You can get it at fallenangel.film and uh, support the efforts there. This is not, uh, you know, it's not Hollywood having a whole bunch of money. These are people pouring their heart and soul into trying to get the truth out about what went on with Extortion 17. So we had that. We had the overview that I gave you on Monday. We had Steve Spivey in to talk about the film. We had Don Brown in on Thursday, drop some... I mean, we were expecting one bombshell, and then it was like two right after it that had not been previously reported. And so um, with that said, we're rounding out the week 
with a young lady from California, and uh, she's going to be with us. Let me give her a proper introduction. Uh, Joni Marquez was born in 1979. She grew up on a 160-acre ranch in Bradley, California. At a very young age, she knew that she wanted to serve in the military. The pictures of her her great-grandfather in the Army fascinated her and ignited a passion within her to want to serve her country. As fate would have it, she ended up joining the United States Air Force in September of 1998 and soon became a member of the United States Air Force Security Forces team. And after serving a few years as a um, Security Forces fire team member, she tried out for the anti-terrorism team, the Phoenix Ravens, and began providing security for the United States Air Force in austere locations across the globe. In September, or excuse me, on September 11th, 2001, as she sat in a briefing room, and watched people jump out of the burning and crumbling Twin Towers, she decided she wanted to have a bigger part against the global war on terror. In 2003, she applied for a USAF scholarship to become an officer, and by August of 2004, she began working on her bachelor's degree while attending ROTC at the University of California at Berkeley. In 2008, she graduated with her bachelor's degree in social welfare and commissioned into the USAF as a second lieutenant. She attended the USAF uh, Navigator School at Randolph Air Force Base, Texas, where she was rewarded a position as a fire control officer on an AC-130H gunship. She later moved on to become part of the 16th Special Operations Squadron and deployed for two combat tours in Afghanistan. During her first tour, she was overheard, or excuse me, overhead the tragic shootdown of Extortion 17. We're going to talk some about that today, that killed 31 American special operators. This was the single most tragic event for American loss of life that occurred during the um, global war on terror. After this tragic shoot down, she continued to deploy to the Middle East, and by February of 2016, she was medically retired from the Air Force as a captain. Although Joni is no longer active duty, she is still active within the military community and seeks to help her fellow brothers and sisters in arms to fight the unseen battle against post-traumatic stress disorder and traumatic brain injury. She's also actively involved with nonprofits that continue to serve the combat veteran both in and out of uniform. She graduated from USC in spring of 2020 with a master's degree in social work with a military concentration. She hopes to achieve her license in clinical therapy within a few years and help decrease the number of veteran suicides by reframing the warrior's narrative and it's my privilege to welcome to the sons of liberty joni marquez hey joni gra- glad that you joined us oops i lost i lost you on the video feed here I'll, I'll, I'll fix that myself but uh hang on just one moment it's yeah no worries it's all part of tech right <laughs> yeah we were talking about this before the show and i think both of us uh, have a little trouble with our tech stuff and, and the people know here i offer some comic relief with some of that as well but it's great to have you on the show thank you for t- making time for us of course. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Now, look, I'm fascinated. I, I kind of want to lead into this and let's hear a little bit about you because I, I was going to say, okay, what makes a little girl want to go into the military? Uh, because I got, I got 10 kids. Uh, we have six girls and four boys. And I don't think any of my girls are thinking military, but they have all different kinds of things. I've got one that wants that rides a motorcycle and uh, works with her husband and uh, doing floors, you know, concrete floors and stuff. I got one that wants to be a professional student. That's she's going for a doctor's next and uh, all this kind of stuff. And I, I read that you saw images of your great grandfather. Can you tell us a little bit about that and about what age you are when you see this and this this passion comes into you that you want to follow in your great grandfather's footsteps? 
Sure. I mean, I was four years old when I saw that picture. And uh, I remember going into my dad's gun cabinet and I was told to never touch anything in there. But I saw this picture and I touched the picture because it wasn't anything dangerous. So I remember just staring at it and wondering what all of that meant. You know, I saw everybody in the same uniform. It looked very stoic. It looked very proud. And from there on out, I just continued wanting to know more about what that brotherhood was about. So, um, yeah, I, I ended up watching um, the men and women um, basically get into the aircraft during the Persian Gulf War. And I was 10 years old at that time. And so when I was watching all of that, it was like looking at my dad, hey, sign me up. You know, I want to go serve. And he just kind of laughed at me. He's like, you're not old enough yet. So by the time I turned um, 18, that's when I decided that I was old enough and I wanted to go and do um, what I could do for my country. So that's kind of that in a nutshell. Okay. All right. Now, is your great-grandfather, is he the only guy in your family who's been in the military? Was your father in there, your grandfather, anybody like that? Yeah, my father had um, injuries from high school, so he wasn't able to join. Um, and so he, he couldn't go into the Vietnam War. But my grandpa, um, his dad, was actually a merchant Marine who also then served as um, Army Reserve. And then I ended up joining. And then from me joining, my brother joined into the Navy. And then my cousins ended up joining. So I kind of felt like I might have trailblazed a little bit in that regard because I was the oldest out of my family. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm proud of, of my family's service. I, I really do, um, look up to all of those that, you know, are in my bloodline and I'm, I'm so grateful. Okay. All right. Um, now when you're, when you're doing this, when you, when you decide to, to join up, you join the air force and, um, is that because you're, you're saying you saw these things in the Persian Gulf, the, the, the pilots and things, because I had a similar experience. I wanted to join the Navy and become, uh, a pilot there. And my dad was like, he came out of the Vietnam era. He was a helicopter mechanic, uh, in Massachusetts. And he said, no, 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 you're not going in there. Uh, mm-hmm. I know what his, his thing was, he, he was very much against a lot of the tactics that had become more modern there. But what, what was it that drove you towards the air force? Was it, was it that because you can fly planes and other things? Actually, it was my recruiter. Okay. <laughs> the conversation that I had, um, you know, I was like, I just went into the Air Force uh, recruiting station, no particular reason. Um, I wanted to join the FBI overall, so I figured if I can get some time in as, you know, a cop, then I can, you know, do my four years or six years and then get out and join the FBI. So I just walked into the Air Force recruiting station, and um, I'm like, you know, what's the difference between all these branches? And so um, he said to me, well, do you want to sleep in the ground, sleep on a cot, sleep on a ship or sleep in a five star hotel? And, <laughs> and so, you know, always to make fun of each other for the branches, I, I chose the five star hotel and I don't regret it. Wow, that's 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 pretty awesome. And I've got a friend. He was in the he was in the Air Forces, went all over the world. And he, he said it was kind of, uh, you know, they take real good care of you and things of that nature. And of course, the academies known very well. I don't, I don't know if you ever got to go there. What is that in Colorado? I think. Um, I have not been now. Okay. I haven't been okay. okay. All right. So you go in and you're enlisted and then September 11th happens. Tell us what happens that, that changes your mind about where you're at in the air force that leads you to want to go and, and to be an officer. 
Well, at that point in time, I had already served about four years in as security forces, and um, I'd already done a few tours as a Phoenix Raven on the anti-terrorism team. And to know that that was what I was fighting against had hit American soil, it just created this fire inside me that I can't really describe other than I just wanted heads. (laughs) You know, I wanted people to pay for what they were doing to us. I mean, I saw people flinging themselves from the buildings, you know, that were burning and crumbling, like it said in my bio. And um, I I didn't know what else to do. I knew I couldn't do what I wanted to do from where I was at as a cop. So I wanted something more. And it took a long time for me to get there. But when I finally got, you know, afforded or awarded the position as a fire control officer, I didn't even know what a gunship was until I graduated from, you know, navigator school and was given that platform. And uh, I graduated top third in my class, so we got to pick which airframes we wanted to get. And when I asked what an AC-130 gunship was, they told me, you know, it's close air support. And I asked what that was. They said, well, do you want to kill terrorists? And I said, absolutely. <laughs> so that's, uh, that's the beginning of the end for that for me. Okay. All right. Now, that's a, it's a pretty big ship. I pulled up some pictures and things and, and to kind of give an idea of it. And those of us who aren't in the military... Uh, what would you say this, this kind of, it kind of resembles the, the Hercules. Is it not, is it the same thing or is, is there a little bit of difference in that? It's the same aircraft. Okay. Um, Lockheed Martin um, attached to 105 and 40 millimeter. And then on the U model, they have the 25 millimeter Gatlin gun. So okay. for the one that I was on, it was the 40 Mike Mike and the 105. Okay. All right. Now, what do you do? On this ship, what do you do specifically? Are you flying? Are you navigating? Are you, you're like, I don't know, I'm wanting to say the guy in the submarine who's commanding everybody else to do all this stuff. What is your job on there? Fire control officer is essentially the person who's in charge of the battlefield when you are overhead in an orbit. And so um, that's when your time to shine is. I mean, as you're getting over or ready to come on target, you know, you're briefing the team, what it is you're looking for, um, what you want to pair your sensors with what guns. And it's basically the quarterback for what's about to happen. So obviously um, you have access to essentially all of the video. Um, you have access to comms to everyone as well. I mean, that's just standard throughout the aircraft itself. So yeah, it's a, it's a pretty amazing position if anyone ever gets to be part of that airframe. Okay. All right. Now, how many people are on the team in this very large aircraft? How, how many people are you are you commanding in that? It can be anywhere um, from thirteen to fifteen. Just depends. So, and then on top of that, if you have anybody that's kind of um, there for backup. Okay. And you're yeah. where are you positioned in in the aircraft? Or are because I know there's two seats up front. And I'm thinking they could give you guys a little bit more comfortable seats because they don't look like they're very comfortable. Uh, they look like they're still pulling out an old commercial aircraft. But you got two seats up front, and you've got some other seats and some equipment in there. And then you, I guess you got some gunners and stuff like that in the back. Uh, are, are, I'm assuming you have to have people man those. They're not just done by the guy driving or flying the plane, right? Right. Okay. No, I was um, there. There's two pilots, and then there's an engineer that sits behind them, and then the navigator. Um, sit sideways, and then the fire control officers sit next to the navigator sideways as well. So we're, as the aircraft is um, moving forward, we're kind of seated, you know. Okay. Uh, the opposite direction. Or, yeah. 
Okay, so your back is towards the the guys flying, right? So you're you're like the guys in the old station wagons sitting in the very our, back. Our, our shoulders are to their backs. Yeah. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. Well, I'm kind of wanting to get an idea here because you're going to be talking about some of the things of what you did on August the sixth, and I, I, you know, you talked about the, or I read off your bio that you have the PTSD, and so that was why you you came out. And my question is, why? Maybe I'm asking this beforehand. Let, let's let's save that one for after, okay? Let's let's save that for after what's going on. Before this time, had you been engaged in any enemy kills or had had you seen any of your your brothers or or sisters whatever the case may be in the military um be killed in the line of duty? Have you seen any of that at all? Um not up until that point. Okay. I was involved with the global war on terror from a Phoenix Raven point of view, so we were just there to provide um, security for the aircraft in austere locations. And then that sometimes meant pulling guys out of Afghanistan, um, you know, on, I think it was, uh, C, I can't remember the C-17s. Sorry. Um, that's the aircraft that I was on some of the time when we went into Afghanistan in different locations to pull people out. So, um, I had never seen anything up until I got into the fire control officer position. Okay. All right. And uh, so, so this is the first time you're going to actually see any anything like that. Can you give us a uh, an image? How many times had you had you flown and provided that security for these guys before uh, these Navy SEALs and the the Rangers that were in the area? Had you done that before, or was this like a first time for you doing that? I was deployed to Afghanistan for a month before um, you know Sergeant One Seven was shot down. So. Uh, and before that, during exercises, I mean, peacetime in the States, you know, we would work with people. But other than that, I never, um, you know, had any experience prior to actually going to the combat zone. Okay. All right. Um, the other thing is, can you kind of walk us through what happened that night uh, from your from your point of view, from start to finish? I mean, what what's your day been like? Are you sleeping during the day? Because this is happening at two in the morning. Are you sleeping during the day? Do you get up at a certain time and there's a routine you go through? And then can you kind of walk us through some of that leading up to what took place that night? Absolutely. Yeah, we uh, were the vampires. You know, we sleep during the day and we come out at night. And uh, I think that the routine, the beauty is in the routine of being in combat, believe it or not. I mean, people return to that space and place because it offers um, just the predictability and the sense of how to sleep, when to eat, like when to go on your mission, you know, that's all that you're focused on. You're not concerned about the external stressors that the civilian world offers you. So it's very focused, you know, and, and you get into that, that focus piece of it yourself. And um, for me, you know, I was just part of the rinse and repeat and it, um, became very familiar. And um, I hope that answers your question. I don't know what the, the rest of it was as far as um, what you wanted. To know. Yeah, just just like the, the routine. Okay, so they're lifting off at what, 2.22, something like that. I forget the specific time. I think that's it. And the a.m., uh, the local time there. And so what time would you normally get up and what were you doing to get to that, that point? In other words, okay, you're going to get up and you you're going to have dinner or whatever you're going to call that at that time of day, you're going to have right. that. And then you you may go and work out or whatever, and you're doing these things and you're getting ready to go on. But from what I understand, this is called very quickly to send the, um, the seals in 
on extortion 16 and 17, you're going to send them in and it's kind of a quick thing. I forget what, uh, what he called a QRF or something like that. So, so what are you doing? And all of a sudden are you called and said, Hey, we need you to run security for these guys over here. Can you kind of lead us up to what brings that? And then let's go into, to what happened that night. Sure. So that particular day I'd gone to the gym. Um, so you wake up around 4 PM, (laughs) everything's in Zulu. So from what I can remember, um, you know, and then you go shower, go get food and then go to your ops center. And so we had already been given a mission that night and we'd already briefed it with the crew. And then all of a sudden our pagers lit up and um, cause that's how we operate over there. Very uh, antiquated, but um, the pager system let us know that there was actually a mission that took precedence. So we ended up just um, grabbing the uh, imagery as soon as we got notified and we're kind of briefing it in the bread truck, which is just this little white vehicle that takes us from point A to B. Um, and when we got on the ramp, we were just all running, grabbing our gear, and you just kind of plan en route. And so um, we were just told that we needed to be overhead because Rangers had already been infilled and they were coming on or they were getting ready to come on to target. So, um, you know, I appreciate um, the director, um, Stephen Spivey. Spivey, sorry, I might have forgot how to say that, but um, he is great in in how he, you know, relayed all the information. I wish the air perspective would have been shared a little bit more from my part, but I understand in how, you know, you have to kind of cut things out in order to try to show everything that you're thinking about for a documentary. But um, yeah, we ended up taking off and we had to hold 10 miles south of um, where the Rangers were actually at. And you know, with an AC-130, you can hear us coming um, from miles away. And so the jig is up at that point. And the, you know, Taliban, all the people over in Afghanistan knew what an AC-130 sounded like. So um, we just had to hold our position 10 miles south until, um, you know, the Rangers wanted us to come overhead. Okay. All right. Now give people a, a sort of an idea when you've got you got two of these special ops helicopters that are flying in, they have some gunships with them, some Apaches, I believe it is, that, that are with them. And then you guys are flying. How how high are you guys flying up uh, when you come in over there? We're flying high. <laughs> you flying high? Okay. Um, high enough, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, enough to make an impact, obviously. And okay. um yeah, the Apaches were overhead, obviously providing the closer support for the Rangers that night. And um, when the Rangers were getting closer to the objective, that's when the six um, military age males started um, exchanging gunfire with the Rangers or they started shooting at the Rangers. And so that was depicted, obviously, in the, um, the film. Um, we weren't able to see all that going on. We just heard it. And um by the time they started getting hit by the um, six military age males, that's when the Apaches were cleared to engage. The Apaches came over, um, took them all out, and then we were allowed to come overhead at that point. So everything was um, basically called cold. And then the IR sensor, um, he was looking out to see what was going on as far as the the bodies were concerned, because I wanted to make sure no one was playing possum. And I was going to light them up again or have our crew light them up. But um, the problem was, is that there were two that started crawling off. And so at that point, when we had asked the JTAC 
or the joint terminal attack controller um, on the ground to say, hey, man, can we, you know, engage these two that are crawling off? Um, he had to reach back to somebody else at the joint operations center because, you know, there's a lot of hands in the pot. And um, unfortunately, that person who was a ground um, ground guy, he ended up basically saying no. You know, the ground commander was like, just watch, watch to see what goes on and, you know, report back type thing. So we were denied. Um, and obviously, as you know, rules of engagement over there, um, I'm, I'm sure people have brought it up. Yep. It was brought up in the film a lot. Um, it basically tied our hands. It made us almost like have, you know, fog of war or helmet fire for no reason at all. I mean, you get caught up in all the do's and don'ts and you're just like, well, shit, you know, like, why don't we just take these people out right now? They're a threat, you know, or can come back as a threat. Um, but unfortunately, you know, the powers that be, the hearts and minds campaign and all that stuff that Obama and Biden had put into place definitely had, um, a control over us. And so we just had to, you know, watch and wait as the two crawled away and then they stood up and then they started running and then they started bounding and, you know, knocking on people's doors. And this was like miles away from the objective area. So the Rangers were no longer, you know, in harm's way when it came to to those two that crawled off from the objective area. So um, we just had to maintain that and make sure that they weren't going to come back and try to cause any harm to them. Okay. But, what you found out, they're knocking on doors and they're accumulating more guys. Is that right? You, what happened after that? Well, it was um, two men that ended up gaining a force of 12. And so um, by that point in time, though, I think they were already a couple miles away um, from the objective area. And so with that, you know, we we're reporting back to the Joint Operations Center and saying, hey, you know, this is an interesting um, grouping of people. But, you know, we don't know what's going on. Obviously, they're planning something. And um, at that point in time, there was a lot of other things that happened, moving parts that weren't shown um, in the film either. But um, we had to basically come overhead for the Apaches at some point because they had to go refuel. And so when we came overhead, that's when we had to hand off to another ISR platform, the 12 guys. So the ISR platform was watching the 12. We came overhead and we were watching the Rangers. And then when we swapped back out, the ISR platform that was watching the 12 said, Hey, we uh, lost chain of custody. And so we're just like, are you kidding me? And so from there, um, the platform I was on the AC 130, we were trying to look for the 12 and there was movement over in this one little um, area that had some huts and some vehicles. And so we figured that that's where they had like relocated to. We uh, found the coordinates. We saw some people walking around with long cylindrical objects, which we couldn't name as RPGs because obviously we're up in the air and we don't have that PID ability from um, the thousands of feet that we're at. So from that point on, we were just watching and waiting and like basically saying, hey, this is a follow on mission at best for next time. Um, don't know what's going on. These guys aren't like getting in the vehicles and driving towards the Rangers. There's nothing happened in regards to that. So we don't have to worry about that piece. Um, and because at that point in time, that's when the Rangers were essentially calling for an exfil. So it just so happened that everything was aligning. Um, and unfortunately, that's when the quick reaction force ended up being um, generated. And so um, we tried to call it off because, as I said in the film, you know, the imagery that we had from that location of the Tangy River Valley, it was just lit up in red, meaning like the small arms fire. You don't want to send anybody in there. No low and slows, no nothing like that. And um, that's exactly what ended up happening. And as far as extortion, once I'm being shot down, I mean, 
totally predictable in that sense. You know, that that area was not meant for that kind of aircraft. Okay, so you're saying that when you're seeing all this, see, the impression that I'm getting, and I'm, I'm glad that we've, we've got you on to give a little more of this issue about the, the air support that is offered. The understanding, the way that I would read anything, is you guys are doing this while they're in the air. And you're saying that once you saw all this stuff that was going on, once you saw what was happening there, you guys were calling in saying... you. You don't need to send these guys in because it's really not safe for them to come in. Am I understanding that correctly? Right. No one. I mean, when I say that the QRF had been generated, they're still on the ground at um, Shank. So the forward operating base is still where they're located. And that's where we're like, nope, call it off. Not safe. Not okay. And um, that's, you know, we, we tried our hardest. And then that's when we started getting push products from the Joint Operations Center and saying, no, hey, this is where we already have some helicopter landing zones, um, pre-can for you guys to check out, see if these are good spots still. And I'm like, how do they know where these HLZs are? Like somebody had already done like the work for this. And it just kind of that right there didn't give me a warm fuzzy. That made me feel like someone's pushing this mission. This has been something maybe that has been in the works for a bit because something didn't feel right. Okay. All right. And so here's the thing. I do think it, it was pushed. I, this is my own opinion. And when we talked with Don Brown, one of the bombshells that we talked about last night, which, I, excuse me, it's last night for where we're recording, two nights ago for the other. And he shared with me this lady, uh, Crystal Wall, uh, who is also in the film, and mm-hmm. where she was saying, you know, she had been in the Navy for three years, and they're telling her to prepare for this mass casualty thing. So they're doing this for days on end, leading right up to this time. And he says, the only time you have mass casualties in the Navy is like if a ship sinks or something like that. And he says, we haven't had any of any kind of thing like that. So they're doing this leading up. You're talking about, it sounds like they're pushing an, I don't want to say an agenda. That's not the right word, but somebody's wanting this mission. They're wanting these guys to be, they're wanting these guys to fly down there in this uh, Tangy River Valley, which by the way, uh, the history shows not only was that one of the first places that we sent our forces in to clear out, but we did it several times. I don't know how many, eight or nine times up until this time uh, that it had to keep being cleared out. And I'm assuming some of that has to do with rules of engagement. I'll let you comment on that if you can. But, okay, so there's a difference in how my perspective is that all this is going on while they're flying in. They're still on the ground. You guys are up, you know, nearing that area, but you're you're dealing with somebody in another area. Am I understanding that correct? Well, the Joint Operations Center is in Bagram. And okay. so that's where, you know, we're normally like talking to those folks back there. So, um, yeah, as far as what we were being pushed and told to do, I mean, you know, they weren't listening to us and they weren't taking our advice. We didn't have, um, we had contact with uh, Extortion 17 with the JTAC on the aircraft before they took off. Um, we didn't have eyes on them when they took off to then when they got shot down. Well, I take that back. We had eyes on them, meaning the pilot saw um, maybe their rotors. And then right before they got shot, um, he, he saw all that. I, we didn't have eyes on as far as like the IR or any of the sensors. So um, and, until they started coming in more. So we didn't, we didn't watch from them taking off at the forward operating base until they got shot down. We didn't have all that. Okay. All right. That's kind of, that's kind of what I was wanting to clear up. Okay. So do you see them at any time, do you pick them up any time before they're shot down or do you catch it right as they're, they're being shot down? Um, the IR, I believe had eyes on for a bit, but you know, we were concerned about like trying to find any kind of weird, strange movement 
um, are on their path. And so we had already picked out an HLZ. We're going to get ready to sparkle. Um, I remember them asking for a sparkle um, earlier and usually that's a one minute out call. Um, but unfortunately, you know, where they were, it was, um, it was just something that wasn't going to happen at the end of the day. So yeah. now what do you do when they ask for a sparkle? Because there's two different things that I think Don said they could do. There's a sparkle, but there's a, there's something else that's a, that's a really big thing. And the sparkle's not that. What do you do when they request a sparkle? Um, usually that's just laying down, um, something for, you know, their, uh, their night vision to see. So, um, I I don't want to go into too many. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's fine. That's fine. I'm not trying to give any, any secrets away here or something, but it's okay. But it's something very subtle compared to something that's, that's very uh, open, I guess, is the other one that they'll ask for. Right. Okay. All right. Okay. So you're, you're requested to do that. Now, do you, do you guys get to do that before they are, they're shot down or is that something that, that goes undone as far as those details go um those are a little bit you know um they slipped my mind um just because i just recall the pilot saying i think they got hit and from that point on um everything just kind of slows down you know um for me okay all right now let me ask you this um don says that there was a civilian aircraft uh that was labeled classified that somehow was taking over lookout from you guys or something like that. And then you guys got back in after that aircraft. Do you remember that? And can you tell us a bit, is that the normal thing? Is that an abnormal thing or anything like that? I mean, for me, when I'm overhead, anything, I just try to stick to my comms with the guys on the ground and um, the guys in the back. So that would be more like the navigator and pilot questions um, the air players were made aware of, but you know, you got CIA and all those guys flying around. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a mixed bag of people having their hands in it. So I am not one to say who was there that night and who wasn't there because we didn't have really any feed other than our own. And, uh, that's all that I can speak to on that, that piece. Okay. All right. Now, but when you got on, when you guys got back, um, well, before we get, before you get back, What's the thing, there's there's some things that you, you talked about seeing, and you saw some of the guys uh, who had obviously been thrown away from the, the helicopter in the crash, and um, you're recognizing there's some heat signatures. When I, when I spoke with Don, he said he knows, even though it's not in the film, he knows that one of the Ranger medics came, and he actually held one of the guys in his arms. He was still alive, and he... It was almost as if he was trying to hang on till somebody got there and they died mm-hmm. in his arms. So we know that not everybody was killed on impact and stuff. What 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 is it that you guys pick up that led led you to believe there's there's people on the ground, there's still there's some still alive, and you're having to watch in that moment nobody being able to help. What what goes on in that what what goes on in those minutes that that takes place? I mean, it's just complete helplessness. You know, like you just feel like you can't do anything. And that's why you're there is to do everything essentially. I mean, other than like, you can't like obviously jump out of the aircraft and provide like, you know, first aid yourself, but um, it almost makes you feel like that. You're like, fuck, where's my parachute at? You know, like I I really need to like (laughs) get down there. And um, that's the unfortunate side of, you know, just being overhead is that 
sometimes you have to just watch it all happen. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I know that's a, that's a hard thing. I, I'm sure that you have some of the things that, that many in our military service, when you, when you want to try to talk to them about things, it's, it's very difficult because you can somehow get sucked back into the moment and everything mm-hmm. comes back out. So I, I'm not trying to press that that issue too no, much on you, but but I I want people to understand the position that that people like you were put in because of bad rules of engagement, because of a bad call, or because somebody actually wanted these guys dead. Which we know many of these guys after Joe Biden opened his pie hole and after uh, Leon Panetta opened his uh, in settings to out them, they were going to family members saying. We're getting our affairs in order. They weren't. They weren't cowards. They didn't shrink back from what they were doing. They just knew there was. It was. It became even more serious, and told their families, "You need to, you know, clear off your social media and do all these kinds of things." So they knew it was a serious deal. Did you have any idea that it was as serious as it was? I mean, you're there a month. Um, have you worked with any of these guys that you were going to be looking over in the past? Um, I worked with Harvell, uh, briefly, uh, we were at the operation jaded thunder in Las Vegas prior to both of us deploying. So, um, I didn't really know him that well, we just worked side by side and, uh, you know, in a professional capacity, um, just in briefing rooms and then like, obviously him being on the ground and us in the air. So he was the only one that I ever knew or worked with. Okay. All right. No, I was just kind of curious as camaraderie and of course it's Air Force and, and Navy. So I don't know how those guys actually work together. I know sometimes there's sort of the brotherly infighting and stuff like that that goes on, but uh, I'm just kind of curious as to how much you work with them. Okay. So these guys are shot down. You guys are there. There's this help, helpless feeling. How long are you guys up in the air approximately continuing to circle the area? Are you up there for hours kind of providing cover for the, the ground forces that are coming in, the Rangers that are coming in? Yes, that's correct. Okay. It was turned into a combat search and rescue after that. So okay. it was actually the navigator on the AC-130 who made the fallen angel call. And from there, everything obviously um, spiraled. Okay. Now, how, how long are you in the air after after they've went down? I mean, do you guys, are you up there all night? Are you up there, you have to refuel or something and, and you're still doing your thing there? What's going on? Well, we can stay up there for a very long time. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Um, we had to stay up there for a few hours, and then we had another AC-130 takeover operations for us. So, okay, and they ran the they ran this this sort of search and rescue deal for. Uh, well, I guess it wouldn't be con- search and rescue after several hours after they understood what had taken place, but then there's some retrieval uh, uh, issues or something like that that takes place for a couple of days. Are is is your unit or or people who come behind you and fill in? Are they still providing cover while they're doing all of that? I believe so. Um, we had to be grounded. So after okay. that, everything was kind of, you know, we didn't get to do our job, that, that, that being the AC-130 crew that was overhead that night. So we had to um, basically go to our room and uh, we were just sequestered for a while just to, you know, wait for the investigative team. And from there, we basically had our days planned for us and the times that we would be interviewed. And um, we weren't allowed to fly for, I think it was almost a week. And then, so we were grounded when all this stuff was happening because they wanted to make sure that we weren't the cause for the um, shoot down or that we didn't mess up. So okay. that was a really good feeling as well. Okay. All right. Now, listen, uh, both Don and um, uh, Mr. Spivey have said that you're a very brave woman for coming forward. I covered your story, by the way, 
uh, a few years back. That was the first time I read your name when uh, you had the interview with Sarah Carter for Circa. And mm-hmm. uh, and that was that was like uh, a bombshell at the time because here we have somebody coming out and speaking out on that. Both of these guys, you know, I've known Don for years now. And uh, Steve, I've only met here recently, probably in the past several months. And uh, they say you're a brave, very brave woman for coming out and speaking on this uh, issue. And Don says that uh, you've got a you've got a situation where you know you're you're coming off that plane that night, and you guys are being told don't talk about this to anybody. Is is that true? Can you tell Can you tell us kind of what went on in that? Yeah, I mean, you know, they try to hit you with a non disclosure agreement and all that stuff, and it's just like get out of here, you know, <laughs> like okay, yeah, yeah, good for gonna- you. We're going to be, you know, signing this and then what? You're going to get to lie to everybody. So I think that, you know, when uh, the the truth comes out, that's when it's like those don't even count anymore. You know, like, I'm sorry. But and and how everything was handed to the parents, you know, the packages that were given given out um, with all the information, CDs, um, however that happened. I didn't even know about any of this stuff. I mean, you know, they didn't invite us to the congressional hearing. they didn't do anything in regards to, you know, involving people that were actually there that night. I mean, the investigative report, it took like a month, a month and a half before it was all wrapped up nice in a bow, the cult report. I mean, that is sickening in and of itself. And so, I mean, I didn't have access to that. None of it until I think it was 2014 when I met the Vons. And honestly, when I went through all of those files, I was able to help, you know, Billy and Karen, um, understand a lot of what they were reading. And, um, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't take it back for anything. I stand by what I did and, you know, I blew the whistle and I do it again. Cause I don't think that what we did, that being our nation, that being the government, how they handled this, it's disgraceful. Yeah, it really is. Especially when some of these men have literally, uh, I don't know what the word I want to use, outpaced all the people to be Navy SEALs. I mean, you just you just don't get to be an enlisted guy and just pop in there. There's a lot of endurance there. You know, we talk about uh, here on the Sons of Liberty, we talk about the Constitution and the Bible are our foundation of our country. And uh, in that, you know, we've got guys who are committed, they're, they're saying they're committed to upholding the rule of law, except for the fact that the politicians oftentimes aren't wanting to uphold the rule of law. They're wanting to to, to throw it under the rug. They're wanting to take, you know, our boys and our girls, uh, you and, and these guys who gave their lives, they're wanting to take and use them for the cannon fodder uh, instead of going and leading. You know, George Washington, the father of our country, if there was a war to be fought and he thought it had value, what did he do? He didn't go send somebody else. He went and led it himself. And I think we would stop a lot of the wars that we're engaged in, that many of them are unconstitutional, if we would just send the politicians first, start sending their kids. Seriously, because, and I'd like for you to speak to this, and then we'll we'll ask some other things. You're a veteran. I've worked with a lot of veterans. I used to be on a construction site 18 years and, and worked with a lot of veterans. Many of them were Vietnam. Some of them were Iraq. And everyone I talked to, you know, it's kind of hard. You have to get to know the guys before they'll even open up to you about that. They don't even really like talking about it. But one of the things that was recurring, it didn't matter if they were black or white, if they were a Christian or non-Christian or whoever they were, they said, if you really want to support the troops, you bring them home and you don't use them for that stuff. You use them to defend this nation here. And Mm -hmm. uh, I'm kind of curious, out of all your experience there, would you agree with that assessment that that the 
politicians need to be put in check by the Constitution. And if we really care about our troops, we're going to be those who want to protect them, not only from any physical harm they have, but as you've experienced yourself, the, the PTSD, this, this trauma that, that goes through the mind that constantly becomes something that haunts you. I mean, that's why we have unmanned aerial vehicles, you know, take, take the threat out without putting boots on the ground. I mean, what are we doing? You know, (laughs) at the end of the day, it's just like, okay, well, we can, we can keep infilling, you know, the countries with our men and women, but why, what's the purpose? Is it to show, show a force At, at the end of the day? Does that make any sense? I mean, it's collateral damage and people just, you know, like politicians can just say that and then be done with it and, go have, you know, Christmas with their family. They're not phased regardless. I mean, you hear Biden say, oh, the the empty chair at your table, you know, when he's talking about people passing from, you know, COVID. It's like, well, what about the empty chair at your table with, you know, the men and women that Amen. have died Amen. fighting for the country? <laughs> Amen. You know, not to minimize or, or compare, but it's like, what about all these empty seats? Like, <laughs> why does it always have to be the COVID victims? How about it's everybody, you know, and in general. Well, I agree with you. And I, I just want to hear that. I want to, ha- I want to have somebody else who is been in the military who, who can say that because I have told people in the show, you know, the experiences that I've had with, with our military men when I asked them, because uh, I, you know, I think it's, I think it's a, a special thing, a special brotherhood that exists there in the military, unlike other places. And uh, for those guys to come and say, you know what, the stuff I've been through, and they don't even like talking about a lot of the things. I'm sure maybe even some questions I asked, I'm not trying to uh, you know, stir up any emotions. I know those come naturally, but I, I think your story has to be heard. I think there's other people that we're uh, looking to bring on as well to kind of keep this story out there because, Joni, the one thing that we're missing here in the United States of America is justice. We can... Our politicians pointed at each other to get political points, and they grill, and they blast, and they rip the other guy, but they never bring any justice. And mm-hmm. that's the problem that we have. And now we've got, you know, all these SEALs, uh, I think some Rangers and a couple of National Guard guys that are that are just, they're gone. Their their wives don't have husbands. Their children don't have fathers anymore. You know, there's, there's the brothers are missing them. Their parents are missing them. And they're gone, and the politicians come in and they give us this sob story about how they feel about things, and then they go on continuing to do the same blunders and uh, and do the stupid things that's, that's costing their lives. And so I think this is very important as to why they're telling you, hey, keep your mouth shut on this. Don't talk about this. Have there been other people, and we have in the film, again, uh, Nick Moore, uh, who spoke out, leading the Rangers and stuff. And we had some people back here in the States who spoke, a Crystal Wall, and there was another guy, Nico, um, who was a forensic guy on the, the ammunition and stuff, who spoke. Have there been any other people that were might have been aboard your ship uh, who's spoken out or anything like that that you know of? No, um, it's just because people are concerned about, you know, their livelihood, their jobs. I mean, I don't blame any of them, honestly. Um, I don't have, you know immediate family in the sense of husband or kids. So with that, my uh, ability to lose things are, you know, limited. So um, if I'm just concerned about my job, then obviously there's that. But at the end of the day, I would rather um, have death before dishonor. So um, that's where I'm at. Amen. Amen. Well, let me ask you this. We're coming up on the end of the show here. What have you, what have you done with your life since that time you, you left? And uh, from what I was reading, you were, tr- you were helping couples, 
uh, with some things. But what is what is the thing that, that you're most passionate about that you're doing right now? I mean, I love helping combat veterans in any way, shape, or form. Um, the nonprofits that I'm involved in, I'm very grateful for. The boot campaign is extremely um, helpful when it comes to getting veterans what they need regards the healthcare or just getting their um, health, you know, like full body scan done. Um, the workups, the checkups, the v, what the VA doesn't really truly offer you when you get out. Um, and then also the uh, Pipe Hitter Foundation is an excellent nonprofit. We want to make sure that men and women aren't being taken advantage of. And um, I think that you know, looking into what's happening with this vaccination conversation, um, I just wanted to really quick mention that, you know, our men and women are going to be forced out of um, the military because they chose to not get vaccinated. And for that, they're going to probably suffer a general discharge. You know, Article 92 is what they're going to get hit with, dishonorable, you know, uh, almost dishonorable. So I think that, um, or disobeying lawful order, I'm sorry. So in regards to where people are going to be after all this, I mean, it's obviously creating a huge uh, division in the country um, over something that people should have a say over. I mean, I didn't fight for people to, you know, be succumb to the government Come on. being what to, told to do or put into their bodies. Amen. Pre- you know, preach it, sister. I Look, I, I just I just posted this on, on Sons of Liberty. And I call them what they are. I don't. I don't sugarcoat it. These are Nazis in the Pentagon that say they will violate the Nuremberg Code, okay? Which says that you can't be engaged in all this public testing of the people, which is what we're in. We're not. This is not. And even if it's FDA approved, all these and it isn't even a vaccine. But vaccines are don't have anything in them conducive to health. And now they're wanting to issue the experimental injection mandate for all active duty troops in the next few days. And you're you're saying. Hey, look, I didn't go serve my country so you can take away the freedom of what I put in or or take out of my body. That's none of your business. This is my jurisdiction. God gives us the rights over our body as far as what we put into it. And I tell you, this stuff is deadly. We've got, you know, well over 12,000 Americans in the official report that have been killed after taking this in the past seven months. And we've got upwards, of, according to a CDC whistleblower, upwards of 50,000. And knowing that we only get 1% of the reports, it could be hundreds of thousands that we're faced with. So I appreciate you speaking out on that. And I want to hit on this just a second, because uh, we only got about 20 seconds here. Yeah. Joni, this is where people can find out more about you, right? Uh, the Piper Hitter Foundation? Pipe Hitter Foundation? Yeah. I'm on that one and the boot campaign as well. Okay, all right. I, I'll get the I'll get the um, the uh, the link for that, and we'll have it in the archive after the show later this morning. Uh, Joni, thank you so much for spending time with us, telling us your story. And uh, if you'll hang on, I'll say goodbye to you after we close out the show. Just a couple of seconds here, guys. If you want to check out Bradley, 3 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Central, SonsOfLibertyMedia.com, right side of the page. Also, we're on BeforeIt'sNews.com. Top of the page there, dlive.tv, the Sons of Liberty. And then don't miss us. We're going to be back in the morning. Kate Shimrani live from the UK, from the UK, 8 a.m. See you then.